0: Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. This week, we have the privilege once more of speaking with Professor Israel Knoll. He is the professor of Bible at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, as well as a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He has written several books, including The Messiah Before Jesus and The Suffering Servant of the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, it is his newest book that is titled "The Messiah Confrontation: Pharisees vs. Sadducees and the Death of Jesus," that brought him back into conversation with Dr. Yeshaya Gruber at a roundtable talk. Last week, Professor Knoll explained where Messianic texts are found in the Hebrew Bible and how those ideas changed in the early Second Temple period immediately after the return from exile. If you missed that episode, you might want to pause this one and go back one episode because that is where we laid the foundation of how the Sadducees typically had a anti or non-Messiah view while the Pharisees had a Messianic view. Today, we remain in the Second Temple time, but focus primarily on the time of Jesus. And we are in a time that is the culmination of 750 years of conflict between different biblical currents regarding the idea of the Messiah. So let's listen to how Professor Knoll describes the dramatic events of the trial of Jesus.
1: So I I say that uh, if we look at the story, and I uh, rely on the version in Mark, which is uh, believed by scholars to be the oldest gospel. So uh, Jesus is brought before the high priest. The high priest sits there with a group of other priests, all of them Sadducees, and some scribes of the temple which are also connected with the temple establishment the pharisees are not there and this is crucial and we will talk about it later but here is the trial there are two figures speaking there one is the high priest kayafa and he asked uh, jesus are you The son of the blessed one, this is very important, the language, because probably he does not even want to say, are you the Messiah, the son of God? Because for him to say the son of God is something that you can't pronounce. The the, the son of God, God has no son. It is impossible. So he, instead of saying, are you the Messiah, son of God? He said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Which is what we call Kinui. And this is a known title for God, the blessed one. We say in the Jewish prayer, even today, Baruch Hu et bless God, the blessed one. So according to Mark, the reply of Jesus is yes. I am, and you will see the Son of God sitting on the right hand of power. So it is clear that Jesus, by speaking about sitting on the right hand of power, is doing two things. First, like the high priest, he also speaks in the language of kinuyim, of nicknames or titles, which is common in this period. Instead of saying God, he says power, gvura, which is a famous and known title of God in this period. So this, uh, I think, helps us to establish the authenticity of this conversation because both sides are using language, theological language, which is typical to this period. Because of this, it is reliable. And, but he says, he will sit on the right hand of power. Namely, he will sit on the right hand of God, which means he's talking about some, 110, because Psalm 110 starts with the saying of God to the royal king, uh, sit on my right hand. This is Psalm 110, a psalm which was mentioned by Jesus in the temple in a very interesting sermon that that he had in the temple a few days before.
0: This gets even more dramatic because, as many of you know, when someone quotes from the Hebrew Bible, they usually are referring to the entirety of the content of what they are quoting. And Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And Those are the verses up to verse 3. Can you imagine understanding that is the entirety of the context when Jesus is standing in front of the high priest?
1: So what is the reaction and response of the high priest? He said, he's tearing his garment and say, Oh, this is, have you heard? This is a curse of God. You have heard? We have as uh, the rule. Everybody who hears a curse of God must tear his garment. And it is clear now, this man cursed God, so he deserved the, the, the verdict of death. No question about it. This is the scenario, as it is described in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel. So I, if you will ask me, According to the Hebrew Bible, who is right and who is wrong? The high priest or Jesus? I will tell you, both of them are right, depend on which part of the Hebrew Bible you you look, because Jesus is clearly following the tradition of the Psalms, the Royal Psalms. According to the Royal Psalms, indeed, The Messiah is the son of God, and he is invited by God to sit on his right hand. So perfect. Jesus is perfect with the Royal Psalms. But the high priest is also following a tradition, the tradition of the Torah, which says, oh, it is impossible to uh, talk on God as having a son. It is impossible. It is a curse of God. It is, I would say, horrible language to apply with regard to God. God is elevated above biological process. He absolutely can have no son. So speaking from the perspective of the Hebrew Bible, I would say, Both are right and both are wrong, depending on which part of the Hebrew Bible you look. This is how I see, why I see this uh, uh, trial as the culmination of very long and old debate between these schools.
0: The tradition Professor Noel talked about that the Sadducees thought it was necessarily impossible, distasteful even, to claim that God had a son was part of last week's episode. But here in the trial, when Jesus quotes from that royal psalm and the audience erupts with horror at what they consider to be blasphemy, a logical question may arise. Who is actually in the room? Is this a trial before the whole Sanhedrin, and thus including the Pharisees? Or would there be reason why the Pharisees would refuse to show up to a night trial? This is actually what Professor Knoll argues in his book. And in the Round Table talk, he lists reasons why the Pharisees would excuse themselves from a night trial of Jesus.
1: According to their tradition, you don't make judgment uh, at night and uh, and secondly you don't make judgment or trial at the time of a festival so they had two reasons not to come uh, if we follow the tradition of the gospel of john which is a regular night they had one reason not to come this is this took place at night and according to their tradition this is not the time to to, to deal with capital punishments uh, like this one so even if they were invited, they would say, "No, we don't agree to the time you want to do it. Do it in another day, uh, in the daytime, and not, uh, not in a festival time. Uh, we, we cannot come to you. We, uh, because the sanhedrin uh, was not fixed. you know, it was ad hoc, ad hoc group for sp- specific issues. So they did not come. And I think that the fact that they did not come and they were not involved, it has tremendous effect. And would they be there, the result would surely be different. Why? Unlike the Sadducees, who continued the anti-Messianic tradition of the Torah, the Pharisees, were support very much enthusiastic about the messianic idea. Be careful. I'm not saying that the Pharisees in the time of Jesus supported Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. I'm not saying this. What I'm saying is that they supported the messianic idea. That for them, To speak in the language that Jesus spoke about son of God, about sitting on the right hand of power, this was not a blasphemy. For them, this is something that they share. They did not agree with Jesus about the identity of the Messiah, but they agree about the very idea of the messianic expectation. And this is clear in some scenarios which are described in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is telling us about two trials that took place later, after the time of Jesus. And one of them is the trial of Peter, and the other one is the trial of Paul. In both cases, the Pharisees and the name which is mentioned there is Gamliel, who was the head of the Pharisees in the time before the, uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Is the grandson of Hillel the Great. And uh, he was the rabbi of Paul before Paul became a follower of, of uh, Christianity. And in both cases, they say, you don't want to take issue. They they, they were Sadducees. They were Pharisees among the judges. The Sadducees were against them, against Paul, against Peter. And the Pharisees in both cases said, the Messianic idea is an issue we don't have to judge Somebody who claimed to be the Messiah. We share the messianic expectation. Let God decide who is the Messiah. It's not to us to decide. So, in both cases, this is the story in the book of Acts Peter and Paul were released because the Pharisees were supportive of them. Paul is saying to talk to the group of Pharisees in the court and saying, oh, you and we, we share the same ideas. You believe in the resurrection of the dead. We also believe in the resurrection of the dead. So I'm, I'm talking to you, you are my fellows in the ideological issues. We may not agree about who is the Messiah, but we agree, agree about resurrection. We agree about the messianic expectation. The Sadducees reject the idea of resurrection, and they reject the messianic expectation. But you and us are having very fundamental agreement. And in both cases, it worked. The Pharisees in the court said, release these people. And this is what happened. So if we imagine that the trial of Jesus would not take place in a time when the ph- Pharisees uh, uh, didn't want to, to take part. Would it be in a regular day? And the Pharisees would sit there with the Sadducees, and Jesus would come, and the hypers would say, oh, oh this is terrible, this is blasphemy to talk about Son of God, to talk about sitting on the right hand of God, the Pharisees would say, "Oh, we we don't. Sorry, we don't agree. We don't agree. This is not blasphemy. This is an expectation which is based on the Psalms. How can you say that the what the Psalms are saying is a blasphemy? So, and Jesus would be released, like in the cases of Peter and Paul. And imagine what would be in history. This would would be a, a major shift." In, in the development of history. Uh, one important thing that should come out of my, my discussion is that we, we, reading the Gospels, we get the impression that there was a constant uh, tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, which is true. But we have to see uh, the... Limits of this tension. This tension was regarding s- some issues of purities and impurities or issue of the Sabbath. But with regard to the mes- expectation, messianic expectation, expectation of resurrection, actually they were in the same camp. And it is very important to remember that even though the Pharisees were a small group, the majority of the people supported the Pharisees. Namely, what was decided by the high priest about Jesus in his tribe, was a representation of a minor group of the Jewish people in the time of Jesus. The majority of the Jewish people of this time supported the Pharisees, and they would be against the verdict of the high priest. So Jesus was crucified by the Romans, of course, but as a result of a decision of a minor group in the Jewish people. So it's absolutely mistaken and wrong to blame the entire Jewish population for the crucifixion of Jesus. This is Vatican II, the the decision, but I gave support to this decision in Rome by a careful and detailed study of the writings of this period. So clearly, clearly, it was a decision uh, of a minor group which, you know, it's not very much connected to the personality of Jesus, the man. They didn't inquire him. Are you from the house of David? Are you, I mean, they were not interested. For them, it was a, you know, it's a general principle question. Do we accept the messianic idea or we reject it? So for them, the issue was not Jesus the person, but the idea of, uh, mess- messianic expectation, elevated messianic expectation. Can we accept it? And they say, no, we can't accept it. It's against our basic idea about a total distinction between humanity and God. I don't think it, it came from a personal hatred to Jesus. It is, for them, it was much more theological, general theological issue.
0: There's one more thing that deserves to be talked about. Sometimes and historically within some Christian circles, there is a tendency to conflate the views of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and to clump all of those together and then say they are against Jesus. And so we pit one group against Jesus and then say they were all responsible for the death of Jesus. However, if we pay attention to what Professor Knoll is saying, then we're going to start to realize the nuances to this ancient group of Jews. Also in the roundtable talk, Dr. Gruber and Professor Noll talk about the impact of these conclusions on the Christian world, including the publications post the Second Vatican Council. This is such an interesting roundtable talk, and I encourage you to listen to the full conversation. But I warned you, you'll immediately want to go buy Professor Noll's book. If you love conversations like this, you should really just join us at the Israel Bible Center. It is there that you have access to many amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible related.